You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This podcast features a recording from Maeve Brennan, 1917 to 1993, Centenary Perspectives, a conference which took place on 24th November 2017 in the UCD Humanities Institute. The conference was funded by the Humanities Institute and is part of the research project Architecture and Narrative, the Built Environment in Modern Culture, convened by Dr. Kate Fama and myself, Professor Anne Fogarty. This podcast features a lecture, Style and Self-Invention in the Writings of Maeve Brennan, which was given by Dr. Ellen McWilliams from Exeter University. Thank you very much, Anne. And I'd like to begin by thanking Professor Fogarty for such a warm welcome and the kind invitation. It's a great thing to be part of an event alongside of critics and writers that I admire so very much. And also great to be here in the company of so many readers who clearly care about Brennan's work. So today I am going to talk a bit about style and self-invention in Brennan's writing. And I want to begin with a letter that Brennan wrote to her husband, Sinclair McHelway, which was written while she was on a visit to Ireland in July of 1959, in which she describes various encounters with Dublin fashion, and in particular the search for a bonine coat, that form of tweed, of course, that came to be closely associated with Irish fashion designer Sybil Connolly, who enjoyed great acclaim in the United States in the 1950s. Now, she recounts in this letter home to New York details of a coat of special interest discovered on one of her Dublin shopping expeditions, which she describes as a sort of Rathmines version of a Dior design. (laughs) And she confesses to her husband in a second letter sent just a day later, I am afraid I need money. I fell into temptation and ordered a coat from one of the best Dublin designers who was making it to my requirements and fittings, etc., for $117. Of course, it will be glorious, but I feel rather guilty. I pay them £10 as a deposit. It was quite bad of me, but then when I think of what I have paid for clothes in New York, I could rage with fury at myself for not having saved my money. A tiny tailor with blue eyes measured me and said I had a lovely figure. Now, what appears to be McElway's answer to this confession uh, is the form of a sort of handwritten note at the end of the letter, which offers the very simple reassurance Worry not about coat or anything else. And Brennan's characterisation of the coat as a sort of Rathmines version of a Dior design is, I think, more than just a minor footnote, as it brings into contact the sophistication of her adult life in New York and her Dublin childhood in Ranelagh, that neighbouring district of Rathmines, something that I had to double-check on my way here as a a Cork woman or County Cork woman. And, And so the two very different worlds of suburban Dublin and metropolitan New York are written into what Ronan Bath would call the grammar of that coat. And this afternoon, I want to think a little bit about the role of fashion and style in Brennan's stories for The New Yorker, particularly those published in the 1950s. In so many of these stories, Brennan offers an extended investigation of style and self-fashioning. At times, she seems to offer a severe critique of the figure of the dandy, but elsewhere in her writing, self-fashioning and the cultivation of personal style take on an altogether positive value and are closely tied to the political and literary commitments of her work. 
I also want to think about how her concern with exploring questions of style, subjectivity, and the power and potential hazards of self-display is manifest in her contributions to those Talk of the Town um, um, essays for The New Yorker. So if Brennan responds explicitly to constructions of Irish femininity in the United States in her short stories, particularly in those that feature Irish domestic servants, Irish maids, she also answered back to a troubling history of imagining the Irish woman servant as a backward and undesirable presence in the American middle-class home through her own personal, highly self-conscious and very determined commitment to stylish self-presentation and sartorial elegance. As a writer remembered as deeply committed to a unique personal style, Brennan's work and life can, I think, productively be placed in a tradition of dandyism that speaks to the influence of all important predecessors in a lineage that ultimately goes back to Oscar Wilde, as well as resonating in subtle but revealing ways with the writing and public personae of New York literary figures that went before her, such as Dorothy Parker. Now, when I first sort of encountered Brennan's work, um, and indeed... Um, her work in my early reading of it was so very much sort of framed by my reading of Angela Burke's Homesick at the New Yorker. I, I was sort of interested to find that the entry in Homesick at the New Yorker, the index entry in, in, in Homesick at the New Yorker, that deals with personality, includes the following keywords. And it says a lot about my relationship with the biography and it's important in sort of shaping my thinking about Brennan that I am indeed familiar with the index. And, but the index draws attention to the following keywords under personality. Charm, dominance, exuberance, generosity, inability to manage money, interest in detective stories, love of codes, sense of the ridiculous, volatility, and wit. And as a vocabulary for discussing Brennan's work, as well as her life, it's a very rich and suggestive one. It is also, of course, the language of decadence that speaks, albeit from a distance, to some of the more immediately recognisable popular impressions of dandyism. So the biography is, of course, especially interested in that idea of Brennan as a traveller in residence, a near relative, I think, perhaps, of what Quentin Crisp would later identify as New York's resident alien in the title of his celebrated diary of the life of, of the ultimate New York dandy. But to think for a little bit about dandyism and what it means in Brennan's life, writing life, how it materialises in her writing life. Um, while acknowledging dandyism's resistance to any totalising definition, Jessica Feldman offers a rather helpful and succinct account of some of its key qualities and characteristics. The dandy is artificial in dress and deportment, always elegant, often theatrical. He creates la mode, style itself. He requires an audience in order to display his hauteur, his very distance from that audience. And I'm interested in thinking about how Brennan engages with this set of possibilities in her careful study of the figure of the dandy in her New York stories, as well as in her cultivation of a New York persona. Not only does Brennan emerge as one of Irish America's most important literary voices, but she can also be read and appreciated, I think, as one of mid-century New York's most enigmatic female dandies. A number of critics have been quite keen to recover the predictably overlooked history of female dandyism. The exclusion of women in the 19th and early 20th century project of dandyism is addressed directly by Rhonda Garanick in her study Rising Star, Dandyism, Gender and Performance at the Fantasy Lecture. As a movement founded against nature, decadent dandyism seems to leave no space for the woman. It prizes perpetual artificial youth and reified immobilised self. 
By virtue of their association with the human life cycle and reproduction, women threaten the dandy's eternal presence with temporality and hence become objects of fear and disdain in decadent literature. Now, Garlick places pressure on the boundaries of the history of dandyism and calls for a more careful appraisal and appreciation of figures such as Sarah Bernhardt, Isadora Duncan and Ellen Terry. But the final chapter of Garlick's book, which is a particularly fascinating one, traces a history of afterlives of the dandy that takes in figures as various as Prince and Derrida. Garlick's roundup of mid to late 20th century exponents of female dandyism goes so far as to include Jackie Onassis. She makes the case based on her association, on, on Jackie Onassis's association with artifice of all kinds, interior design, haute couture, the fine arts, even her famous hairdo. And she suggests that the female dandy was then capable of infiltrating the very most privileged of Irish-American circles, just as Maeve Brennan's literary star was in the ascendant. Brennan might perhaps be added to this history of American dandyism, but her her work and life are also best understood in relation to the culture of Irish dandyism that has Oscar Wilde at its centre. Brennan, as well as offering us her own version of dandyism, holds the dandy figure up for scrutiny and invests an idea of dandyism, I think, that draws attention to the power and purpose of style and its political value. In the genus of Irish dandyism, every Irish writer after Wilde is indebted to Wilde's archetype, but recent work on the inheritances of an Irish female literary tradition points towards alternative possibilities for thinking about women in relation to a tradition of Irish dandyism. In her article, Edna O'Brien, Irish Dandy, Maureen O'Connor breaks new critical ground in theorising the female dandy and develops a critical model for thinking about the Irish woman writer and her relationship with her own image in the public sphere. O'Connor traces a genealogy from Edna O'Brien back to Maud Gaughan and Sidney Owenson, thus opening up new possibilities for thinking about the place of women in this history of Irish dandyism. In this, I think she provides us with a very sort of illuminating critical urtext for considering the Irish woman writer as dandy. Maeve Brennan might, of course, also be seen as belonging to this tradition of female dandyism. And evidence for this, I think, lies in the preoccupation with style that you find in her work and its relationship with the political commitments of her writing. When it comes to matters of style, the careful attention to nuance so characteristic of Brennan's prose was mirrored in her meticulous attitude to sartorial matters, a sensibility cultivated during her years as a copywriter and later fashion assistant at Harper's Bazaar in the 1940s. This early apprenticeship at Harper's Bazaar was especially important to her thinking about fashion and self-fashioning. Issues of Harper's Bazaar that date to the early 1940s demonstrate a real anxiety about the contribution of the fashion magazine to the war effort. Brennan was witness to a period of fascinating contradictions during which magazine culture had to negotiate anew the terms of its relevance and importance for its American readership. At the same time, women who were at the centre of the war effort were granted a new kind of visibility in the celebration of their contribution to the workforce in magazines such as Harper's Bazaar. Her training then at one of New York's premier magazines shows itself, I think, in her later writing and how she calls attention to the power of fashion and indeed its attendant responsibilities. So in Brennan's 1953 story, The View of the Kitchen, Charles Runyon, who's a regular visit, visitor to the fictional suburb of, of Herbert's Retreat, a key setting of so many of Brennan's New York stories, he amuses himself with the hostess and lady of the house, Leona Harkey, by decorating and painting a statue of a clown in her garden. The clown wore baggy pants, a flowing tie, and a jacket too small for him. 
His grey stone wig hung dead from one of his hands and his face with its despairing grin had just been freshly powdered and painted with purple lipstick. In light of Charles Runyon's role in Brennan's Herbert's retreat stories, that had very much of self-appointed dandy and official authority on all questions of taste, from home decor to matters of fashion and personal style, it's difficult not to interpret the powdered and painted clown as a mirror image of other kinds of presentation, display and self-fashioning examined by Brennan. There are times in her work when Brennan very fiercely and knowingly critiques one form of dandyism, what for her it would seem is the wrong kind of commitment to style. Especially damning of Charles Runyon in the role of self-style New York dandy is his hostess's Irish maid, Bridie. Bridie, the Irish domestic and all-seeing outsider, is of course a recurring figure in Brennan's story who wryly refers to Charles Runyon as Mr. God Runyon because of Leona's faithful devotion to him and because of the trust she places in him when it comes to matters of domestic and personal taste. Oh, he's a very elegant gentleman. Did you notice the pointy shoes he's wearing and that waistcoat with the little buttons on it and the way he shapes around, imagining everybody is looking at him? He'd make you sick. This is Bridie's um, response to Charles Runyon and and his his interest in self-display. In unpublished draft material on file in the Maeve Brennan uh, papers at the University of Delaware, uh, Charles Runyon's wardrobe is scrutinised even more closely. And it's a scene that seems to take us back to his life before his installation as resident consultant of style at Herbert's retreat. We learn that he had morning clothes, afternoon clothes, evening clothes, clothes to wear to balls and funerals and christenings and dinners and teas and cocktail parties and luncheons and banquets and suppers and receptions and for promenading and going to church and paying afternoon calls. For receiving the press, he had many outfits. He was prepared to be interviewed at breakfast or in the late morning, at any time afterwards, at home and for parties given in his honour, from ladies' club teas to full-dress theatre suppers. He had such a variety of clothes that it was unlikely he would be ever seen looking twice the same. So far, there had been no demand for interviews and no one in New York had ever given a chief for Charles, but he knew that invitations would come, the requests and the invitations, and when they came, it would be in an avalanche, and he was ready. He had been ready for fame since he was a tiny baby. Now, his wardrobe was ready. So Runyon, more often than not, ends up on the receiving end of Brennan's satire, and she finds various humorous means of punishing him for his vain delusions. An important footnote that I think further contextualises Brennan's vendetta against this character is that Charles Runyon is a literary critic and theatre reviewer, and his popularity as a guest at Harvard's retreat is in no small part down to his celebrated wit and his promise of access to culture and sophistication. Vital accessories and the jostling for position that goes on between the residents of this aspirational New York suburb. The domestic servant Bridie, I'm already introduced to you, once more offers a helpful account of his privileged place in the community. He has his own room here even. He told her the way he, she want, he wanted it and she had it all done up for him. <coughs> he hasn't even got his own car, but they fall off themselves around here to see which one of them will give him a lift out of the city. They think it's an honour having him around. He's supposed to be very witty. A wit he is. When not being fated in the New York suburbs, Runyon lives in a room in a hotel in the city, a room that none of his New York friends have seen. Although his one-time celebrity um, leads to great speculation about the decor of his home. 
His room, in spite of the expectations of his devoted followers in public, is an arid shrine to self-absorption, completely at odds with the public image of Runyon, a celebrated writer and wit and man about town with an appreciation for the finer things in life. The narrowness of Runyon's vision is captured most vividly in his reading habits. His bookshelves are populated entirely by his own work. Now, a shadow of his former success, he suffers the humiliation of having his work limited to a weekly column for a string of Midwestern newspapers. So under pressure to defend his public persona from his increasingly impoverished state, he has little choice but to take up the role of resident dandy offered by Brennan's fictional suburb of Herbert's retreat. Charles Runyon's service to dandyism, as it seems to evolve in Brennan's stories, is more or less confined to the middle and upper middle class women he patronises, and most particularly his generous, if insufferable, hostess, who provides him with a second home and offers relief from his mean existence in the Murray, Murray Hill Hotel. In return for such indulgences, he is relied upon to be what the story describes as their infallible authority on the rules of gracious living and on the shadowy and constantly changing dimensions of good taste. Brennan goes to special lengths to expose the extent of Runyon's vanity in spite of the penury of his existence. His retreat from the world and repudiation of of intimacy might be forgivable according to the law of dandyism, but what Brennan cannot seem to forgive is that Charles Runyon is mean, grasping and rude, lacking in manners, as Quentin Crisp would have it. Good manners being, as expounded in Crisp's Manners Manners from Heaven, a divine guide to good behaviour, one of the most important accessories of style. In The Gentleman in the Pink and White Striped Shirt, we witness Runyon stealing a neighbour's newspapers and going to great lengths to avoid tipping a bellboy. And it's a story that sees him punished very harshly for his meanness, when in his efforts to avoid being found out as a petty thief, he ends up ruining his new pink and white striped shirt with newspaper ink the same expensive shirt that was brought especially for him by his hostess to celebrate the anniversary of their acquaintance. Brennan's unrelenting criticism of Runyon's brand of dandyism is at first impression perhaps surprising, given that Brennan's own work and life speak to a shared interest in self-containment, self-presentation and indeed style. As a one-time fashion writer for whom personal style was paramount and who was known and remembered for her trademark style, it is striking that in her exposure of different forms of, of hypo- hypocrisy in her short story, she reserves some of her very harshest satirical punishments for the dandy figure. But neither Charles Runyon's preoccupation with fashion nor his lack of sincerity is any kind of crime. Um, in fact, Brennan's work is, of course, wary of sincerity as a particularly dangerous kind of affectation, and her stories reserve their greatest suspicion for the motives of the self-appointed middle-class philanthropist. Brennan exposes Runyon's great crime as his lack of imagination and intention. In this, he fails as an apostle of dandyism and emerges as a clownish figure with much in common with the decorated statue in his patron's garden. Brennan's extended meditation on dandyism is then, I think, most interested in its potential powers. The running anxiety about the relationship between originality, responsibility and matters of style in her work, revealed in her satirical critique of Charles Runyon, combined with her personal and professional interest in the the subversive potential of fashion, suggests an attempt to redraw the constitution of dandyism on her own terms, so that style is capable of becoming a significant and empowering agent. In Brennan's stories, 
It is the resident dandy's lack of vision beyond mere imitation that is exposed as particularly problematic in this version of dandyism. In her 1954 story, The Stone Hot Water Bottle, Charles Runyon makes up Leona Harkey and styles her to look like the French artist Marie Laurenson. I invented you, my darling, he liked to say, affirming his status as a conceited arbiter of style. But throughout, the implication is that for Runyon, fashion and self-fashioning are a mere matter of mimicry rather than an expression of originality. So in reflecting on their friendship, Brennan's obituarist in The New Yorker, William Maxwell, declared that to be around her was indeed to see style being invented. And the same frequently cited encomium has taken on special value in how Brennan has been memorialised. But there is a good deal to suggest that according to Brennan's sensibility, and perhaps unusually for the dandy, with the invention of style comes responsibility. Her celebrated personal style was an especially important defence of the beleaguered underclass of, of Irish women servants who populated her New York stories. Brennan underscores her defence of the Irish women immigrants who were given voice in her stories by fashioning her own image in, as an Irish woman in New York as a model of elegance at home in the upper echelons of New York society. She successfully answers back to a long history of caricaturing Irish women in popular magazines by making her own image the most powerful reply to the kind of prejudice stereotyping that more often than not imagined the Irish servant as slovenly, a troublesome, a blight on American middle-class domesticity. Her much-celebrated film star quality and her carefully crafted sense of style become important accessories in the larger project of countering reductive stereotypes of Irish women. And if her stories and New Yorker essays reveal a great deal about her place as an Irish woman writer in America and her commitments as, an, as a New York writer, linked to this is, I think, a concern with style as a deeply meaningful form of creative expression and an important channel of personal agency. Ever aware of the difficulty of being an outsider, personal style became part of her armoury in holding her own in New York society. Her long-winded lady essay, The Good Adano, from 1966, contains a wry statement of the power of clothes, a hyperbolic illustration of Roland Barthes' fashion system, founded upon his central claim in interview in 1967, that, contrary to the myth of improvisation, of caprice, of fantasy, of free creativity, we can see that fashion is strongly coded. It is ruled by combination in which there is a finite reserve of elements and certain rules of change. The whole set of fashion features for each year is found in the collection of features which has its own rules and limits, like grammar. In the Gudadano, the long-winded lady sits alone in a restaurant and silently observes a group of showgirls, decoding the dramatic grammar of their costumes. Their walk was sedate, as well it might be, because their dresses did all the work. Slinky, skin-tight, slithering dresses that recalled the body of Circe, the gestures of Salome and the intentions of Aphrodite. One dress was of white lame sewn all over with tiny pearls and brilliance, and the other was of shiny baby pink cotton striped up and down in thin lines with pink glass bugle beads. Each of the girls carried a cloudy grey mink stole and, a lo- and long gloves and a little fat handbag, and each of them, as she sat down, swept her right hand underneath herself to make sure her dress did not wrinkle, while her eyes went about the restaurant in a wary, commanding glance that took in everything there was to see. Now, in this, this scene, style choices effortly, effortlessly transform the women into Circe, Salome and Aphrodite all at once. 
because of this transformative power of fashion, with it for, Bra- for Brennan, it seems, comes responsibility. And elsewhere in her, her New Yorker essays, she expresses keen disappointment at the abnegation of such responsibility. And this is something that I think is most notable in a scene in The New Girls on West 49th Street, her essay from 1967, in which the long-winded lady witnesses a young woman attempting to mimic the style of Marilyn Monroe. Three or four summers ago, at about six o'clock in the evening, I saw a girl walking alone along 49th Street. She wore a red dress and her walk was a ladylike travesty of Marilyn Monroe's walk and she was swinging her handbag. Now, the damning criticism of this travesty of Monroe seems to stem from the same source as her condemnation of Charles Runyon for being a vain impressionist rather than a true exponent of style. The unwitting Monroe impressionist, given a walk-on part in the New Girls on West 49th Street, serves as a foil for a somewhat outlandish but nevertheless galvanising expressive dance that's performed by a group of young women on one of Midtown's busiest thoroughfares. The costumes of these young women and their performance is gauche, but entirely original. And the long-winded lady concludes that if they seem incongruous, it's only because West 49th Street has some way to go before it catches up with them. For the long-winded lady, the young woman stepping out in imitation of Monroe fades in comparison to these dancers. All heads turn to stare at her as she sauntered broadly along in broad daylight, and she seemed very daring. But any of the girls I saw tonight would make short work of her. The members of the dance troupe suffer abuse for their art and are taunted by a heckler, but the long-winded lady calmly surveys the scene and concludes that they are simply ahead of themselves by a year or two. Unexpectedly, in the eyes of the long-winded lady, these gauche but enthusiastic dancers prove to be an inspiration, while the limited performance of the Monroe Impressionist is never more than a travesty. So reflections on these interlinked questions of style, sophistication and responsibility are threaded through Brennan's writing, particularly those stories and essays that take us to New York, um, but are further amplified, of course, when we examine them in relation to her life. Such questions about self-display and performance take on a different kind of gloss when examined in relation to, to Brennan's own New York persona. And while her relationship with the New Yorker is well-established, the details of her association with Harper's Bazaar in the 1940s remain a little more mysterious. Her name appears on just a few credits in the magazine in this period, but she worked as a writer in the fashion department from 1943 to 1949 and was fully participant in the culture of the magazine in the years dating um, to and immediately after the Second World War. And the culture of the magazine in the 1940s does seem to leave its mark on her writing in significant ways. In looking at issues of Harper's Bazaar from these same years, I've been very struck by how its blend of literature, high journalism and fashion editorials offer a kind of template for Brennan's emergent attitudes towards fashion and self-presentation, all the more important given that this was the decade during which, as Angela Burke argues in her biography, Brennan discovered her own personal style, that aesthetic to which she would remain committed for the rest of her adult life. And to take us to that famous series of photographers, uh, of photographs, um, by photographer Nina Lean, by life photographer Nina Lean in 1945, photographs at Brennan at work for Harper's Bazaar, they clearly speak to an interest in, in fashion and style that seems to go beyond Brennan's appointed role at the magazine. So Life published this photo essay about Brennan's work at Harper's Bazaar and indeed followed her around New York as she examined and appraised accessories that would later appear in the magazine's fashion shoot and, I suspect, in features such as Shopping Bazaar. 
Each picture captures her and some of her colleagues as studying an item of clothing or fashion accessory with great care. Some of those items are sported by a model, others are worn by Brennan herself. And Brennan is never just an aloof observer, but often fully participates in these scenes, often remaining the subject of the photograph. More often than not, we see her leaning back, and head tilted towards the scene in a considered evaluating posture. But in one particularly striking photograph, I think the most striking of them, Brennan models a pair of spectacles peering closely at her own reflection in a looking glass. And I think the image is especially interesting because Brennan's expression is very much that of the detached fashion writer, but she is nevertheless fully active and absorbed in this fashion moment. So her interest then in the power of self-fashioning and exerting control over her own image serves, I think, as a means of self-defence and is imaginatively tied to some of the political drives in her work. Her self-consciously determined elegance and celebrated stylish persona is no idle occupation. It becomes in itself an answer to some of the prejudices encountered by less privileged Irish women immigrants, as well as to the limitations set by other dominant models of Irish femininity to be found in American culture. Dandyism is then, I think, one of the one of the different one one site on which the different strands of Brennan's work find an especially meaningful coalescence. The overriding interest in style and self-fashioning that makes up a vital strand in her work and was so vividly animated in how she lived her life offers one protective route to understanding Brennan's place in mid twentieth century Irish and indeed Irish American literature and culture. So, thank you very much. I'll leave it there. Thanks for listening to this UCD Humanities Institute podcast. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.